our guest here on uh, our special episode of Rumble, celebrating our 25 millionth download of our podcast in our in our first year here. He is to me one of our most brilliant thinkers. He wrote a book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Saving the World. My guest is the incredible Anand Girdadas. Anand, how are you? I'm great. So so nice to, to be with you and congratulations on, on this milestone. So Anand, here we are. Uh, we're into the second month of the Biden administration. Honestly, right from Right from you know what, uh, and I, and you don't pull your punches, uh, but I'm dying to hear your assessment of where we're at so far. I know we're not very far into it, but um, every day I'm thinking about what do we, the people, need to be doing to move that ball down the field, and and what can we do to nudge the new president toward you know a better day for everyone. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. And, 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 and we're at a moment that I think is still very early. Yeah. Um, so I think it's hard to be definitive. But so let me answer it this way. I think there's kind of two philosophical, you know, inclinations that I have in, in thinking about how do you assess Biden right now? Number one, this country needs thoroughgoing, top to bottom structural change. Um, if it is going to have a prayer of surviving as a single country and a liberal democracy over the you know next few decades, mm-hmm. um, point number one. Point number two, which I hold intention with that, is political reality is complicated. Um, we are currently an incredibly divided country in which the burden of persuading lots of people of a whole bunch of things is very hard, independent of how good or worthy or principled the leaders in question are. And so it's hard. And so when I look at Biden, I look at someone who in the primary and in the well, in the primary, let's say, um, really disappointed me on point number one. was was not committed to the kind of thoroughgoing structural change we're talking about. If anything, the lane he chose was, I'm not those people, right? I'm not, because I mean, you remember, even Kamala Harris was for Medicare for all. Like a lot of the folks were for Medicare for all. The, the ground was shifting. It wasn't just Bernie and Elizabeth. And he very clearly, and probably intelligently from a strategic point of view, because look who's now president, um, said, I'm not that. And it's also just because of who he is. And I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of that approach. I just think it absolutely did not meet the moment. I think it doubled down on a kind of democratic politics that was very much complicit in getting us into this mess. But then, and you and I both know the second part of this story also, as, it, as we got into the general election, the usual thing didn't happen. Yeah. He did not tack to the center, he tacked to the left. That's right. Um, so, there's a there's a kind of like spectrumy way to talk about that, but there's also a way to talk about that that's about listening and permeability. And what I know of a lot of people who have tried to lobby him is that they consider who are way to the left of him, not all, but many of them consider him more permeable and his administration more permeable than a lot of other people they've dealt with, which is an interesting nuance, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 
I would, up at the top of that list, put Varshni Prakash, who runs the Sunrise Movement, right? Like, they have different environmental policies. They have different outlooks on life. They're from two different generations, mm. you know, far apart, um, with maybe a few in between. But she was invited onto this unity task force on climate. She felt respected, heard, listened to. His climate plan moved drastically. Remember, in politics, people often don't want to do that because they feel there's shame and there's face loss from doing that. Like, he changed his climate policy pretty significantly um, to the point where you had Noam Chomsky talking up Biden's climate plan and the permeability that he showed in in being willing to revise it. Um, And then you have, you know, in office, I think some evidence of both of those tendencies. You have on the $15 minimum wage, I think a clear lack of fight. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to do the right thing, but you know, there's a lack of muscle around it. Um, right. But on the environmental stuff, I think he has been bold. I think on the, the child welfare uh, thing is gonna cut child poverty in half as part of the stimulus. That's a pretty significant piece of public policy. Um, I think, he needs to be pressured relentlessly. But I think, and a lot of the people listening to you, I would say, who listen to you in general, I would also say, this is not a moment to be fatalistic, right? Mm. I think it is also a huge mistake to be like, he's a corporate stooge, will not do anything. Um, I think he is a malleable, plastic, permeable person who has shown himself to be this way and that way on a whole bunch of things, mm-hmm. who is someone whose superpower in politics is his ability to feel where the median is, what the country is ready for. He is not someone who jumps 10 miles out in front of the country, but he has a good sense of where the country is. He's a good sense of where a lot of the folks you've chronicled in your career, where, where they can be led and where they can't be, where they can be pushed and where they can't be. A lot of what you have done in the media with your voice, I think he has similar skills. And... I, I have more hope for him, I will say, than I expected to have by watching him in the primary. Mm. I think there is a way in which when you finally get to that job where you don't need another job, there's a kind of fuck it quality to it. Um, and a lot of Democratic Party politicians, including Barack Obama, who illustrates this in his memoir in great depth, are just so obsessed with the constraints on them. And if there's any silver lining to this awful moment we're in, is that the constraints really don't matter if you don't want them to matter. You can advocate whatever right right now because people need so much. I think you're right. The fuck it part of this is he's 79 years old. And I just have this feeling that... um, he knows. I mean, look, anybody. If you're 79, you know, no offense, but you know, you're in the final few innings here of your life. How do you want to go out? How do you want to be remembered? And and forget about the the, the narcissism of that question. How about just what would you like to do if you were told, you know, you've got five years left in your life, you've got eight years left in your life. How would you like to live those years? What would you like to do? I got a feeling, I don't know. I know because I was raised in this kind of home, you know, the parents who went to mass every day, you know. um, It wasn't uh, some kind of fake thing for them. Uh, They went there and they they sat in the pew and they thought a lot about the day, about the kids, life. 
I got a feeling he's doing a lot of that. And that's why we're seeing this shift. Not because he's becoming a lefty. That's never going to happen. But um, he does, he listens. I believe Bernie, Bernie has said this publicly and privately. He considers him a friend. Bernie is respected by him and is listened. Yeah, go ahead. The way I think about it is a lot of us have split identities. Um, and we straddle worlds. And one way I often think about Biden from the outside, I don't know Biden, uh, is the tension between Scranton Joe and Delaware Joe. Uh And what I mean by that is Scranton Joe is the story he actually tells more often, right? Which I would say is the story, very similar to the story you've told in your career, the story of the hollowed out middle. This used to be a country with a middle, the middle got killed, that path, got killed, that ladder was, the wrongs were kicked out of it. Um, Delaware Joe, as a senator later in his life, ended up representing as a senator, a lot of the corporations and, and taking money from some of them, the corporations that are domiciled in Delaware in order to keep regulations and tax burdens low, yes. that have used Delaware and particularly financial credit card companies, those kind of things to, to create a regulatory environment. And part of what Joe Biden and the Democratic Party in general failed to do over the last generation was understand and articulate the connection between what was happening to the people in Scranton and what was being perpetrated by the companies in Delaware. And of course, Mm. I'm oversimplifying because they were people in both places and corporations. Of course. No, this Um, makes perfect sense, though. But but it's, it's the corporations he represented in Delaware that were screwing the people he grew up with in Scranton that made his dad's life and other people's lives like it so hard and precarious over time. And if he is able to find his authentic way, which is not going to look like your authentic way, and it's not going to look like my authentic way, and it's not going to look like AOC's authentic way, and it's not going to look like Bernie's authentic way. But if he can find his authentic way to make that connection, to understand that those people are down there because those people are standing on their necks. And and to find an authentic way to fight for the people in Scranton, metaphorically, um, by appropriately reining in those Delaware corporations. Um, to me, that provides a kind of central metaphor for understanding the opportunity he has. And I think you're right. And I, and I also think, and this is where, as you know, I am the first to rail against these Democrats when they're kind of neoliberal shills and this and that. But we also have to not let ourselves off the hook. We haven't, you and I and whoever else might agree with us on some of these things, we actually have not won the public opinion argument on several of these things. We have won it on a bunch of things. We've definitely won it on Medicare for all. The wealth tax numbers look pretty great. There's a bunch of things where we have won the public opinion debate. But, you know, this remains a country for good or ill where a significant number of people who would benefit from these policies do not currently want them because of residual fears of communism or because they hate government. It's not entirely powerful interests standing in their way. It's powerful interests that have brainwashed lots of people that have helped fund a political culture that tells people this story. But at the end of the day, significant numbers of Americans don't want help that would make their lives better. And a lot of that is race. Heather McGee has a great new book, The Some of Us, that says, you know, white people consistently vote to not have nice things for themselves just so that black people will also not have nice things, right? That is, you can't blame only people in office for that. AOC has this mm-hmm. great line about people in office 
they kind of service existing demand out there in the public. But it, right. but if there's not a public demand for something that's at a at a kind of fever pitch, right? Their opportunity to service that demand is quite minimal, and it's not politicians who create political demand always. It's artists, it's writers, it's journalists, it's people who expose scandals. Um, and so there's a huge amount of work for all of us to do to change the demand calculus that is operating on someone like Joe Biden. So I've been thinking a lot about what you just said. And, uh, you know, I've been in my own lockdown here in, uh, in New York, which is where I was when this whole thing began a year ago. And, um, I can't wait to get back to Michigan. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, buoyed by what happened in November, but I'm also very frightened by how many tens of thousands of Michiganders uh, have drank the Kool Aid and uh, and and somehow believe Trump or whoever is their way out of their misery. And um, and I just I think that there's. I think that if we all, we all of us who are not politicians did our work uh, to try to get back or not get back, I think we never were, obviously we were never where we needed to be, but to to get to where working people and as I whenever I say those words now remember when I say working class, the majority are women, uh, they're people of color and they're young and uh, they are paid the least amount of money. So that's what you need to think of. And yet in, in a place like Michigan, we have a large working class still, but it, now it's a very diverse working class. And um, <clears throat> I think people, especially young people can help lead the way here. And I wanna do whatever I can do to be supportive of that. I'm just curious for you personally, what have you thought about in terms of, of I mean, I'm happy if you just keep putting out the ink and, 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 you know, get on morning Joe every now and then and, and let people who normally wouldn't hear what you say, let them hear it. But I'm just curious in this new moment we're in. Um, and even though we're still in this pandemic, what is it, what is it that you have thought about doing here in 2021? It's a great question. Um, I, so I, I, I spend a fair amount of my time on, on the ink. Um, my, most of my time right now is writing a new book that very much delves into some of these questions that you and I have been talking about. Um, I can't get too much into it, but it's a lot about how we come back from tribalism and division and stasis, but not in the way that we often talk about it, which is through milk toast compromise that changes nothing and unity and like Joe Manchinism. Um, I think I'm interested in how do we really persuade large numbers of people to want to do things, to want to go to places that they don't want to go right now. And, you know, I think there's this interesting discourse that happens on the left where one true story crowds out a second true story. The first true story is that if you want to do big sweeping things that would help regular people, you're offending the powers that be, you're offending the establishment, you're offending big money, and they're going to do everything in their power to stop you. That is absolutely a true story. I wrote an entire book articulating how that story works and plays out. But there's a second true story, which is, People on the left, Democrats, are often not that good at selling the vision that they're trying to articulate. And that's another reason they also fall short. 
right? And people don't want to hear that because that feels like, you know, blaming the victim or that feels like, a, no, but like we're up against big corporate media. It's like, yes, you're absolutely up against big corporate media, which is doing everything in its power to shut you down. That's absolutely true. You're absolutely up against like a murderous right wing media ecosystem that wants people to die of COVID. Like 100%, that's the case. You're up. Yes, the up against story is 100% real. But that does not make it not, you know, just just because the ref is rigging the game doesn't mean you are as good on the field as you could be. Um, and I say that actually as an optimistic point. Uh, and you and I talked about this in the episode we did. I think there is a set of messages, uh, a set of language, a set of phrases and images, um, a much wider variety of pitches that can be made to the American people for these kinds of progressive values that you almost don't hear. I, right. I think there is an entirely new language. I would love to have Joe Biden. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about, which I think a lot of people on the left hearing what I'm about to say would vomit. I would love for Joe Biden. I'm not Christian. I'm not religious. I'm not even, I don't even like religion. I would love for Joe Biden to make an hour long speech on the Christian case for fighting climate change. Hmm. I would 100% be down for that. Right? right. Like, right. why don't we have that? Why don't we have that? Because there is a Christian case for it. The Bible provides enormous justification for fighting climate change and tending to, you know, quote unquote, God's creation, if you believe this is God's creation. Um, but that's just like unexploited terrain, right? Um, and someone like Joe Biden can do it completely authentically, right? I mean, I saw AOC make a religious case based on her faith for protecting trans people the other day. And I was thinking, you know, people don't understand how smart this woman is and the range she has relative to someone like Biden, who has talked about his faith all the time, but is not making those crossover arguments that might get to those folks you're worried about in Michigan. I want to welcome a new underwriter to Rumble, Amazon Studios, and their very powerful documentary film, All In, The Fight for Democracy. All In was uh, directed by Liz Garbus and Lisa Cortez, and it documents the brilliant Stacey Abrams and her Herculean efforts to fight the racist voter suppression. Yes, this is the Stacey Abrams film that you've been hearing about. And I have to tell you, it's incredible. And Stacey Abrams also serves as a producer of this film. All In also shows the long and ugly history of voter disenfranchisement in this country and how it currently threatens everything that we hold dear today. My friends, we are the majority of this country, but we will keep losing elections as long as one major political party is committed to the elimination of our voting rights for our fellow citizens. Democracy is something that we must actively and ferociously fight for, or else we won't have one. And this movie, All In, The Fight for Democracy, explores these fundamental questions. Who gets to participate in our democracy and who does not? Most importantly, it demonstrates how we can fight back. It actually gives you solutions that you and I and every other person can do 
to protect the democracy of this country. And it's no surprise to see all the accolades that this film has been piling up, including nominations from the Writers Guild of America for Best Documentary of the Year, the NAACP Image Awards, the Hollywood Critics Association, and most recently, this film has been shortlisted by Academy members for the Oscars for Best Documentary. So I want to urge all of you to watch All In, The Fight for Democracy. It's available now on Prime. I'll have a link to the film in the description page of this episode. And I personally want to thank Amazon Studios, not just for supporting this podcast and supporting my voice and supporting filmmakers like Liz Garbus and Lisa Cortez, but for all the good work that Prime does in supporting documentary nonfiction film at a time when we need nonfiction more than ever. And I thank uh, Amazon Studios for helping me bring my voice to the millions who have been listening to this podcast in this first year. And we're really lucky today because this episode, celebrating our 25 millionth download, it not only has another underwriter, the other underwriter is Amazon Studios for another incredible documentary that they put out there this year and another one that has been shortlisted for the Oscars. And this powerful and beautiful documentary is called Time. Time is the feature documentary debut of a talented young filmmaker. Her name is Garrett Bradley, and she has accomplished something profound here. She has made both a beautiful love story but also a powerful and devastating film about America's cruel and racist prison industrial complex. The film tells the story of a woman named Fox Rich, who has spent the last two decades of her life campaigning for the release of her husband, Rob G. Rich. He's serving a 60-year sentence for a robbery they both committed in the early 90s in a moment of desperation. Bradley paints a mesmerizing portrait of the resilience and radical love necessary to prevail over the endless separations caused by this country's mass incarceration epidemic. So let me mention just a few of the places that have already given this film awards for either Best Documentary, Best Director, etc. The Gotham Awards of New York City, the Doc NYC Film Festival, the Sundance Film Festival, the International Documentary Association Documentary Awards, the New York Film Critics Circle, the Los Angeles Film Critics Circle, the National Society of Film Critics, the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival, and the Zurich Film Festival. And as I said, it's now just been recently shortlisted for the Academy Awards. So do yourself a favor. Watch this movie. It's called Time. Watch it this weekend on Prime. I'll have a link to the film right here on the description page of this episode. And again, I want to thank Amazon Studios for supporting me and this podcast, my voice, and supporting the work of talented filmmakers like Garrett Bradley and her excellent film, Time. Can I just go back just before what you were just saying? Because I thought you made this um, wonderful point about Biden. If he were to give an hour-long talk, a sermon, in effect, of of how he connects Christianity to climate change. And I just thought, wow, that is 
That would be such a good idea. And um, and then, uh, actually, I was going to play this for you in our little discussion here. It goes back to something you said um, when you were my guest a number of months ago. Actually, you were one of my very first guests, if you remember. Uh, I, t- I took a chance on you, Michael. I mean, I took a real, you know. <laughs> Yes, I, know. I didn't know who this who, who who's this upstart podcaster. I know, I know, you know? I know. It, it was nowhere in my in in my resume uh, was podcasting, and but I think you were on you were like the second or third person I interviewed. So thank you for that. But you said something on there, and and uh, we pulled this out last night because we wanted to play this for you, and and have if the audience didn't hear your uh, episode, which has one of our highest uh, numbers of listeners and downloads uh, from that first week a year ago. But um, if I can, uh, Basil, are we ready? Can we, can we play uh, this, um, uh, this piece of Anand uh, speaking on Rumble uh, here uh, just a little over uh, a year ago? What I want some of these progressives to learn to do is to co-opt this language of personal transformation but for grand public policy. And to say, not what would you do, but who would you be? Who would you be? What kind of self would you have if you didn't have student debt? What kind of marriage would you have if healthcare anxiety was not a part of your marriage? Right? What kind of relationship with your children would you have if you could work one job instead of three? And actually invite people, because a lot of this stuff in the progressive movement sounds a lot like the way I sound, frankly, a lot of time, which is like corruption is bad, this is bad, this is bad. I think we have to do better, myself included, of showing people what life will be like if this succeeds. What will your life be like? I think what no one says, what I don't hear Elizabeth Warren saying enough, Bernie Sanders saying enough, is like, life will be so much more fun in America. If we win. Right. Like, let's not, let's not, let's not bury the lead here. Yes, right. yes, yes, yes. Transitions phase. It. Yes, sure. All of it. Right. You know, what's really fun to like, not think about healthcare for the rest of your life and where it's going to come from. That is fun. It's a better, more fun life. Call your friends with that half an hour. You don't have to stare at a medical bill. Right. To have the money to take a vacation. Correct. To have the time off. To have any of the things that we should have as human beings. Money, as we know, is a leading stressor that causes divorces, right? Right. How many things, people go to therapy. People try, you know, as an Indian person, I can say, you know, people try Tantra. People try all, all kinds of stuff to spice up your marriage. You know, you know what will really spice up your marriage? Not having student debt or to pay for healthcare. Right. Right? And I think... Part of when I, when I think about how do you not have how do you not have the repeat of 2016 in places like Michigan, I want to see progressives going to places like that and unapologetically pushing for the policies we've been hearing, but talking about it in a language of patriotism and talking about it in a language of personal transformation and helping people see that this is the American thing, what we're pushing, and this is the thing that will make your life thrilling, fun, full of love whole so (laughs) the last part we cut off was the part where we agree that medicare for all would make people have better sex 
Yes, uh, I think, yes, Basil, I, I've tried to tell him this is not a, a PG-13 show. We can we can do anything on here. But yes, you were in the, in the middle of saying that. And, and I was laughing because, of course, we just instinctually know this uh, because because who wouldn't want less stress in their life? Who wouldn't not who wouldn't want to live in a way where we're not constantly having to worry about this, that, or or the other thing? And you're so right. Why don't we on the left talk more about how much fun it's going to be to to have a different life, to live in a different way? That that's so much better than just constantly just this is messed up. This is fucked up. This is this is and, and I know we need to. I, I, I'm not. I am. I am one of the main purveyors of that. But you but and I, I are both. And I and I think it's yes. You know, and there's a place for it. You know. I think we all have that friend who like comes to your house for dinner and just there's eight things that the world has done wrong to them that week. And you know, I get it. And and when we're talking about these issues, the analysis is correct. The insurance companies really do suck. The system really is rigged. Billionaires really have bought and paid for it. I am no shade on the thesis or the analysis. It is true. It's what I've spent the last many years telling people about. So I'm, this is a self-criticism as much as anything else. But I now reflect, and my job is to write and tell the truth. It is not to win political office. So I would do it differently if I was doing that. But at the end of the day, People are also just drawn to, it's like that Tina Fey line in 30 Rock, I want to go to there. I want to go to there is a really important emotion in politics. It's not the most rational one, right? Like a lot of people like Barack Obama's policies. A lot of people felt I want to go to there with Barack Obama, right? Mm -hmm. Which is how you get people voting for very weird successions of people over over time, as you know, from Michigan. Right. And you can't and, you, and reporters go and are like, so who is this Bush, Obama, Obama, Trump boot voter? And you can like try to process it as Newsweek magazine or whatever in some really linear data driven way. But like the very simple Anand theory is the I want to go to their theory, like different people make people feel I want to go to there. Yes. And you got to make people feel that. Re- and, and so to answer your question, why does this not happen? It's, I think, the dark side of good things. Uh, Democrats, I think, feel a particular obligation to be the serious people in an age where the other party is literally a party of fiction, literally a party of non-reality, a party of fakeness, a party of uh, fascism and nationalism and conjured nostalgia for, you know, white paradise of the past and white paradise that will be restored. Um, So there's some... You know, there's some pride in not being not that in wonkiness, data driven, serious, sober, not painting grand fantasies that are not going to come true. I get it. it comes from a good, good place. Um, I think there's a separate issue, less positive, which is just geographic and psychographic separation. Um, the more there's been this sorting of America into zip codes that have just fewer percentages of people from other political tribes and part of what this means is that you don't actually just know the intuitions of a wide range of people, right? So part of why does the Christian climate speech not get written is a lot of us, and again, I include myself in this, don't have a very good feel instinctually for what the arguments might be that move a variety of people. If you don't have in your group chat 
a fundamentalist Christian, a Muslim, an immigrant, a black person, a, you know, working class person, an affluent person, right? If, if those thing, all, if those identities more and more get kind of into group chats of the like, um, what starts to happen is like, you don't become very good at knowing if I say this, it will do this to this person or knowing that this person's having this stressor. And it's just actually a lack of information. I, I've, I think about this so much in the context of tribalism and a lot of polarization is hating people, but a lot of polarization is not knowing a lot about other people. It's mm. not being curious about other people, right. um, not knowing what you don't know, not being curious about what you may not see. And I think it's going to be really, really important to, for, for, progressives who are up against this extraordinary burden of establishment power to be able and willing to make a kind of wide variety of pitches that that strum on all the different chords of American aspiration, whether it's, you know, climate, whether it's health, whether it's education. There are Christian cases for this stuff. There are rural freedom, rugged arguments for this stuff. There are capitalist entrepreneur arguments for this stuff. Um, there are arguments about tradition and values for all of this stuff. There are arguments uh, that are kind of cosmopolitan urban appeal to that kind of community. There's arguments that appeal to young people about opportunity. There's arguments that appeal to older people about leaving the world in a good spot for your kids and grandkids. But if you're not doing, making those kind of crossover appeals, um, you're just leaving so many votes on the table. And I know this because I go out reporting and meet people who I know from their stories and the data of their lives would hugely benefit from things that they do not want. Hmm. Right. And we can't just keep saying they have false consciousness. We got to win oh. them over. Right. I agree with that. 100%. And, and, and also, the people on our side, like ever since the election, I know people full of despair that 74 million people voted for Trump, uh, 11 million more than last time. And, um, and, and they want to cite the statistic constantly. I'm like, you know, really, that isn't getting us anywhere. And by the way, let me just remind you, 74 million people used to smoke. And now they don't. And you would have been one of those people who say, well, there's no way you're going to get people to stop smoking in a bar. Correct. And yet Smoking is actually an example I cite all the time for the point I was making earlier about not being fatalistic. Fatalistic right. fatalism is dumb politics and it's an incorrect, it's an erroneous description of reality. In our lifetime, smoking is a great example. There was corporate power involved. Right. There were people dying involved. There was addictive habits involved. Right. And through a whole combination of moral suasion, public policy lawsuits, we change that fundamentally. Um, you know, I think you could say the same thing about LGBTQ Absolutely. public attitudes. Well, in, the, in 2004, thing. in my state, in Michigan, and in 14 states, Karl Rove was such a genius to get out the vote because he knew Bush was going to lose. People already knew this war was wrong. And, and, and they end up winning by only one state, Ohio, because they got Ohio and Michigan and 12 other states to put it on the ballot to make a constitutional amendment that you cannot marry the person that you're in love with if that person is of your gender. And it went right in, not a law, it went into the constitutions of these states. And I remember thinking that night, boy, that's the end of that. How 
to be gay in America tonight. Uh, it just, and then I snapped out of it and I, I, my first thought a week or so later was, you know what? They, the right can't win this because every family has a gay member in that family or the extended family somewhere in that family or it's the person working next to them in the cubicle or it's a classmate or it's what they can't carry on the hate to someone they like or love. And, and then gay and lesbian and, and the whole LGBTQ community started coming out and took the brave acts of coming out and saying, you know, an aunt says uh, to the nieces and the, and the um, nephews, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gay. I'm a lesbian. And it's like, what? Well, we don't hate you. We're supposed to hate you. Now what am I going to do with this? On an, literally over just 10 years, right. that flipped to the point where a conservative Supreme Court said this is wrong. That you can't and, and if you think it's, it's such an important story, and again, it involves this combination of movement building, moral suasion, art, television, art. Yes. will and grace, public policy, yes. lawsuits, <laughs> and crossover. Now, I actually think the LGBT pursuit of success illustrates this crossover point that I was making with Christianity climate change, right? What are the two institutions? You're, and there have been so much written about this. Um, Although it was about people having people in their families, this was not an inevitable set of victories. This was one of the most strategic, calculated pursuits of victory. And I've talked to a lot of people who are involved in this movement, read their books. They, what are the two institutions that they tried to get into first? Out of all the different fights you could pick in this country as a gay person shut out of literally thousands of different institutions and systems, what are the two fights they picked? We want to be in the military and we want to get married. What are the two most conservative institutions in this country? The military and getting married for the rest of your life. Right. right. They have red, white, white, and blue written all over them. Yes. And, and they knew exactly mm. what they were doing. Wow. Right. So it is going into communities and saying, your picture of me may be that I'm like, I don't know, having promiscuous sex in nightclubs in New York City all night long, and I, I, my lifestyle is different from you, and I'm fundamentally different, and you, and you want to build a notion that I am other, I'm different from you, my life is irreconcilable with your life. So here's what I want. I want to be able to lock myself up in a commitment to one other person for the rest of my life. Will you let me do that, please? Will you let me like, lock myself up in marriage for 50 years? Um, also, I, if, if you don't mind, would you mind if I went with you and fought or fought on your behalf while you stay here in other countries? Would you mind if I risked my life in war? Right. This is what I mean by crossover politics, where you you're on one side, but you don't accept the lines as they are. And you make these very careful, strategic pitches to different. And, and what you do immediately is you scramble people's sense of what the lines are. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to think about, as you said, these shifts have happened in our lifetime. They are extraordinary. And it is completely possible to draw on the logic of them to have shifts on things like climate, shifts on things like uh, education, shifts on things like healthcare. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I just I'm so inspired just listening to 
to you talk about this and what and thinking about what I as an individual can do and others who are listening to us, what you what we can all start to do tonight, tomorrow. And um and not just as individuals, but what can we do collectively? Um and not just leave it up uh to Joe Biden, uh to Chuck Schumer, et cetera, et cetera. Um and that's why I'm I'm weirdly optimistic um about uh our chances to fix some of the things we need to fix and to, and to be a better people post pandemic to create a new normal, all those things. And, and I think this point you've made and I've heard you make it and I read your stuff about the, the, um, the way that we, we do this personally. We do this with the people that we work with and go to school with and live in our neighborhoods and go to church and whatever it is. Um, that we can have a really profound impact on them if we're not up on our high horse and if we think about how to communicate with them uh, to what's important to them and um, and never give an inch on the racism, the misogyny, all that stuff. We don't have to. We we just just like you just barrel through and talk about the things that you know you can reach them with. And maybe we'll have we'll have some success with that. Either way, always keep it in the back of your mind. I tell people, we're the majority, and we're never going to go back to being the minority again. And if you can't do the math of twenty years ago, twenty one years ago, when Gore won, Gore won by a half a million votes. No matter what way you wanted to slice up the electoral college, half a million more Americans wanted him. Than George W. Bush, and then three million more wanted Hillary instead of Trump, and then over seven million more wanted Biden over yes. four more years of Trump. And I and I, I've said this since the election: get ready for ten million, get ready for winning by ten million actual votes, actual people. That's the trend. That's where the country's going. So don't worry, don't get all oh, 7 million voters or 74 million voted for Trump or uh, yes, yes, I know. Wait, what happened to our minimum wage? It was supposed to be in the bill. Yes, yes, I know. That just means we've got more work to do. But we're 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 in the house here. And I I agree with that and I think that trajectory is even truer on the demographic side of things where I wrote a piece in, in the Inc. actually a, a few months ago saying, you know, we are falling on our face in this country because we are jumping high and we forget this. We forget that what Trumpism is and was, was a revolt against the future. But yes. a revolt against, in a revolt against the future, the protagonist is the future. The future is the protagonist. Right. of the story, the onrushing future that is pluralist, that is multicultural. All you got to assume is that the babies born this year grow up. If they do, uh, you look at the demographics of the babies born this year, we're living in a different country. And actually, to pat ourselves on the back as Americans, which is not something we have occasion to do very often these days, the kind of diverse pluralist uh, country is actually quite rare in history, we're going to become a superpower of color. Um, right. We're going to get to a majority minority status before any country in Europe. And I'm not sure any of them will ever actually get there. Um, you know, some of the other great powers on Earth, Russia, China, India, 
wonderful countries with their own great civilizations, not nations of immigrants, not nations that have figured out how to open their doors to people all around the world. This is a country we are building in which there is no fixed idea of what it means to be a person from here, except you're committed to some basic set of ideas and institutions and norms and ways of relating to each other. And that is an extraordinary project. And there will be revolts against it. There will be burps along the way. There will be people like Donald Trump who are barnacles, you know, growing on the side of that future. But that is the story. That's where we're going. And what we have to do is sell that future to the people who fear it and sell that future to the people who fear us and sell that future to the people we fear. It is not enough to be right about the future. You have to sell the future to people who are not sold on it, who who feel like they can't see who they will be on the other side of the mountain. And with love, but also with, as you said, zero inclination to compromise with them on what the future is. I'm not going back there. That we're not, it's not being negotiated, but with love say, I can get why you're rattled by change or by the future, or even by the loss of white privilege, because it's better to, more fun to be privileged than to be less privileged or more fun to be a man who could have people, you know, waiting on you 24 hours a day than not. I get it. It, unfortunately, you're gonna have to give that up, dude. <laughs> but I get why you might be unsettled right now. And I'm willing to walk with you into the next country. Um, if yes. we can do that, yes. what we are building is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And um, I think if you and I and others keep working on presenting the story of the future to our fellow Americans, just enough of them, not all of them, I'm sorry that we know that Millions are probably lost, but, you know, there are millions who uh, didn't want to give up their seat on the bus or at the lunch counter or anyplace else. And things changed and they had to watch the change occur. And there's no way around it. But um, we can hold out our hand and we can say, if you just come with me for a little bit here, I want to show you just how good this can be. And and doesn't it doesn't the air feel so much better in here while we're eating dinner <laughs> and not having to breathe cigarette smoke just a small example um on an, uh wow thank you for everything you just said thank you for being one of my very first guests on on rumble and taking that risk uh, uh with me uh and all that you've done before that and since then and um uh again i encourage people to sign up for the ink uh, it's uh, it's uh, some reading every week that you will be happy uh, that you participated in, and um, and please come back and and be part of this again. Um, uh, personally, I just uh, uh, I think we're blessed that you're in this world, and I'm sorry I don't mean to go so overboard here on the, but it's um, you know we've been in a desert. And this last year has been like being in the desert of the desert. And yet we've had so much positive, good stuff happen in terms of what happened in November, what happened in Georgia, what happened, you know, we go down a list of things here. And I don't want that to stop. And I'm, I'm both, I'm excited by it and I want out of the desert. And you are one of those voices that uh, have, have led me and others 
through this time. It will not be forgotten. Uh, and uh, many thanks and much gratitude to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Re I really appreciate it. And congratulations. And one day we're going to make a movie together. Yes, we are. You heard it first here. That's <laughs> right. They'll never let us do it now. Yes. Oh man, I hope that's true. Uh, th that would be uh, that would be a, a great thing. Um, and uh, see, you if you really knew how I work, just the fact that you said that here tonight, I will stay up for a couple extra hours after this episode's over, and I'll be shooting you bullet points tomorrow. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. What do I got going on? Yeah. No. Well, you have you have a lot going on, and and I'm, I would expect the same from you. Those are your bullet points. So, uh, <laughs> but let's yes, let's do that. Um, thank you, my friend. Thank you very. Thank much. Thank you so much. So great to see you, and congrats. I want to thank our executive producer Basil Hamden, our editor Nick Quaz, Donald Bornstein helped us with some of the engineering and and the editing here tonight, and I want to thank our control room engineer uh, Nick Palm for the great job uh, that he did. Uh, on, on this uh, special episode of Rumble. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll we'll see you in a few days. We've we we've, we've got another piece of this 25 million celebration uh, coming up here. I think sometime next week. So so tune in for that. Uh, in the meantime, please take care of yourself. Be safe. Be well. And uh, we'll talk soon. This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore.